You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from the book of Luke, uh, chapter 12, verses 13 through 34. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? A thing you are not able to do as small, a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will they clothe you? Will he clothe you? O oh, you of little faith, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that we would understand these things, that we would not just understand them mentally with our minds and our intellect, but we would understand these things in our heart, our soul, our mind, our body, that we would trust in you above all. We pray these things for our good, for our deepening joy and contentment, and for your glory in our lives and in this world, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. Uh, Yeah, it is already darker. It is 
just kind of said, it's like amber in here already, which is really great. It will be dark in here by the time I start getting up to preach in a, maybe a couple of months. But welcome. Uh, we've been walking through the Gospel of Luke. It's been so good for my own heart and soul. Uh, a couple of us were talking at lunch on Wednesday. How you guys? Did you ever hear the 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 two the combination of two words? unprecedented times before like three years ago. I don't know that I, I had really ever heard this, and it seems like now it made sense in 2020, but we're just still using it, and I don't know that we're ever going to give it up. Uh, these just unprecedented times for three and a half years, and it's probably just going to continue. We, we continue to think that everything is unprecedented. Uh, undoubtedly, the specifics of wars and conflicts right now are in many ways unprecedented, but wars over land and ethnicities, these are not new. Uh, what feels perhaps unprecedented to us is maybe like the uncertainty of economic uncertainty and inf inflation that most of us have not experienced or remember in our lifetimes. One of my favorite internet memes or jokes uh, is saying, in this economy, uh, not just things like going on vacation but, or saving for kids' college, but like live life and love in this economy or pride and prejudice in this economy? Jingle all the way in this economy? Waves of mercy and waves of grace in this economy? Those are for you 90s youth group kids. But money is something that we all worry about. All humans, in all generations, in all times. Whether we have a lot, whether we have a little, even older societies that depended more on trade or barter, we are all naturally worried of, will I have enough? Especially in times of economic uncertainty. Maybe the question will be, will I have enough for today? Or maybe, will I have enough for 40 or 50 years from now? Maybe, will I have enough to survive? Or maybe, will I have enough to be happy? Maybe, will I have enough to feel important? Will I have enough to appear important? Well, in Luke 12, Jesus comes in like a surgeon. He comes in with a very clear diagnosis of the problem and then a very precise scalpel to expose and then fix exactly what is wrong with our hearts. We're going to think through this passage tonight by asking three questions. What do you have? What do you lack? And then what should you do? What do you have? What do you lack? And what should you do? Uh, first of all, what do you have? Jesus is still teaching. He is still teaching. We've been seeing, we've seen him over the past many weeks just ongoingly teach. Luke doesn't break this up at all. Uh, he's just teaching and he is called, we've seen over the past many weeks, he has called the crowds to repentance. He is calling uh, not just the crowds, but he's including the Pharisees and the lawyers who use their authority to lead the people into a way of understanding righteousness apart from the righteousness of God that God gives to his people as a gift through faith, which then works from the inside out. And so now Jesus moves from confronting the external pressures that we put on ourselves and others put on us, and now he just goes straight to the internal, straight to the heart. Verse 13, someone said in the crowd to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Now, it's not absolutely clear, but this is likely a younger brother who, now that his and his brother's father has died. The younger brother thinks that the firstborn 
eldest brother is withholding. What he believes, anyway, he's withholding the younger brother's fair share of the father's inheritance. He is not getting enough. And he's heard all of this teaching on repentance and all of this calls to discipleship of what Jesus is calling people to follow him in. And he's like, yeah, you know what? My brother should do that. And he actually isn't asking Jesus to arbitrate. Jesus says, who made me an arbitrator? He's not asking him to arbitrate this thing. He's saying, hey, Jesus, my my brother is withholding my fair share, rule in my favor. Rule in my favor so that I can get what I want. And so Jesus doesn't answer him. He He says nothing to the man. In verse 15, Luke tells us, and he said to them, he like turns to the crowd, like ignoring this guy who's spoken up over here. And he says, take care. And be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He's essentially saying, be careful, O listeners, do not break the 10th commandment like this guy's doing. You shall not covet. When you make your life all about what you have or what you don't have, you're setting yourself up for disaster. And then as we've seen Jesus do in the past few weeks, he tells a parable, a story, in order to sneak past his listeners' presumptions about themselves, their presumptions about the world. And he begins by just saying, essentially, once upon a time, once upon a time, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Now, before we go any further, the man and all of Jesus' listeners would have been thinking at the time, okay, so this is a righteous man. This is a righteous man who is being blessed by God with a plentifully producing field. What a harvest the Lord has brought to him. And so perhaps the listeners might be thinking, all right, how is this man going to respond to God's abundant blessing? How might this man emulate a character like Boaz? In the book of Ruth, how might he use his blessing to care for the poor and for the vulnerable? How might he call together huge communal feasts to benefit and bless others? And yet, what is the man's response in this once upon a time? Let me just read this and let me emphasize the pronouns that Jesus puts in this character's mouth. The man, the rich man, thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. I, 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 my, 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 me, me. What is the meaning of life according to this man, this character in the parable. How might we, if we could put ourselves in the, uh, into the story and come and ask this character, what is the meaning of life? What, what is the purpose, the point of life? Well, he tells us. He says, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. In other words, according to him, the meaning of life is essentially the same way that we would answer what the meaning of life is. Maximal ease, maximal comfort, Maximal time for leisure, maximal money available for the things that make me happy or satisfy my appetites. Rather than using what God has given him for the man's greater love and enjoyment of God, rather than using what God has given him for the good of others, the man assumed that everything that he had was given to him for him. Maybe after all, he had actually worked hard. Maybe he had worked very hard through the 
planting time, through the reaping time, through the harvest time. Maybe he had felt that he earned it, that he deserved it, that he was the right kind of righteous. And yet, the man was living functionally like an atheist, that God did not exist. While he may have said that he believed in God, and while he may have, if you had given him a theology exam to write and mark the right answers on, he would have said, yes, I believe that it is God that has provided this abundant harvest, but his life showed that he didn't believe it. If God had provided the harvest, then it did not belong to him, the man. And if it didn't belong to him, then it didn't exist merely for his own ease, his own appetites, his own leisure. And so the story turns. Jesus doesn't clarify what happens to the man. Presumably, he has died, and this day then becomes a literal day where he was not prepared to meet his maker. It becomes a day of judgment. Verse 20, God said to the rich man, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? These barns full of grain, whose are they now? They're not yours. Who do they belong to? What are you going to do with them now? This is the ultimate you can't take it with you parable. That No matter how much we have, how little we have, at the time of death, at the time of judgment, we all have the same. Naked we come into the world and naked we leave this world. Several years ago, a video went semi-viral Uh, In this video, a guy is walking around a pizzeria and he approaches random customers as they're sitting and eating their full pizzas on the table and he'd walk up to the customers at different tables and he'd walk up and say, with a hidden camera over there on the side, and he'd walk up and he'd say, hey, you think I could get a slice? And now the, the people who edited this video undoubtedly left out some more positive interactions that might Uh, cheapen the rhetorical punch of this video, but like over and over and over again, he walks up to people and says, hey, you think I could get a slice of your pizza? And almost always the the people respond, I think like many of us would respond, like what? Who are you? Why, Why are you asking me for my pizza? In fact, no, no, you can't have a piece of my pizza. And why might we, my, why might the people in this video respond with such a emphatic no? Because, like, I earned this money this week. I worked hard for it. I got a paycheck, and I went and bought this pizza for myself. I have earned this pizza, and you, freeloader, have not done anything. You just came in and walked in and asked for my pizza. So, no. Next, some guys outside the pizzeria give a homeless man on the sidewalk a full pizza in a box. Uh, and he is... He, gratefully accepts the pizza sitting on the curb outside and he begins to eat and a couple minutes later the same guy from the pizzeria walks outside and he sits down next to the homeless man and he says hey you think I could get a slice what do you think their response is the man says yeah yeah here he gives him some pizza now we can't see motives the way that Jesus can but I think it's likely that the customers inside think of the pizza as theirs I earned the money that bought this pizza. You did not, therefore you can't have a slice. You didn't earn this. Are you crazy? Whereas the man outside knows that whatever pizza he has was given to him. It wasn't his in the first place, so it does not bother him one bit to give a slice away. Which of these are you? How do we think of our money and our possessions? Are they gifts to steward, to manage on behalf of God? Are they trophies of your hard work to be hoarded? Because if the meaning of life is the enjoyment of our trophies, 
or the using of our trophies to have more fun and to have more and more of our appetite satisfied, well, you can do that. You can do that. But you'll have your reward. More fun, more leisure, more temporarily satisfied appetites, and then one day, a bunch of empty bags. Duffel bags that sure felt full with all of the hard work that we've done. Look at what I've earned. Look at the right kind of righteousness that I have built for myself. But then these duffel duffel bags that we think are full when we approach the seat of judgment, we drop and they're empty. It's just like dust comes out of the empty zippers. Nothing but vapor, here, gone, and forgotten, completely unable to satisfy, unable to save, unable to deliver. There is a day coming for all of us when our souls will be required of us. They belong to God, our souls, our life. And we must answer, what is, what was the meaning of life? What did you put your hopes and trust in? And if we're honest with ourselves, so often the answer to that question, I think, is just a functional atheist staring us in the mirror. One who does not believe that God is good. One who does not believe that God has given everything that I have earned, I deserve. Me, me, my, my, I, I, mine. Even our own abilities, our own skills, our own hard work, our own temperaments. But what was Paul's point in Romans 12 about the church? Do not think more highly of ourselves than we ought, but to use our gifts, how? For ourselves? No, Paul says in Romans 12, 6, having gifts that differ, differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, how? For the body. In everything that God has given us, not only our spiritual gifts, but in our material gifts as well. And so, in this first question, what do you have? Well, Paul answers that question in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? If, you, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What do you own that was not just some pizza given to you by the Lord God of heaven and earth? And if God gave you everything you have, why do you boast as if he didn't, as if you earned it? What you have is actually not yours. God gave it. You have it now, but you don't possess it for eternity. Ultimately, one day, it's empty duffel bags landing on the ground, spitting out dust and vapor. Your paycheck, your house, your car, your savings, your future vacations, your favorite dinner, what amazing gifts. These all are. And as we thought about many years ago in the book of Ecclesiastes, and as we used the book of Ecclesiastes tonight for a confession of sin, what what often better way to know and enjoy God by enjoying the gifts that he has given, but that we might use them to enjoy and understand the God of the gifts, the giver of the gifts, and not putting our ultimate hope and trust in the gifts themselves. What amazing gifts these are, both to enjoy the love of God and then to use the gifts of God to benefit and to bless others. Not just to accumulate and to accumulate and to accumulate and to accumulate. And so because Jesus can see into this younger brother's heart that all this little brother wants is more and more stuff for me, myself, and I, he warns that this mentality shows that you have been bitten and you have been infected with the venom of the serpent. 
At the end of this road is nothingness. You'll never get enough to make you happy. At the end of this road is emptiness. You will never get enough to make you content. At the end of this road is judgment. Judgment for the worship of the self and the neglect of God's glory and the love of neighbor. But of course, Jesus was first confronting the covetous heart of his brother and what he didn't have. We were just thinking about what you do have And so the other side of this coin that Jesus now more personally with his disciples warns them about is to ask them, what do you lack? He has now made this question more personal as he's turning to the crowds and taking his disciples away. And instead of the man who lived his life so that he could relax, he could eat, drink, and be merry, verse 22, but he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. What Jesus is not saying here here is, don't worry about your life. Just like hakuna matata, your way through life. Like, if the day happens to provide you some food to eat, great, eat it. Because life, though, it means no worries for the rest of your days. So just kind of bounce along carefree and don't be anxious. No, consider the ravens. Even though the ravens don't plan for the future by farming, by preparing, by building storehouses, do ravens work hard? They work hard. And then every day they eat what is provided for them. So what does God do for them as they work hard? He provides for them. And so Jesus isn't prescribing some sort of asceticism, some like removing yourself from the world, detaching yourself from anything in the world that might produce anxiety. I think many of us might read a section of scripture like this and say, yeah, man, like the American dream is not for me. I am not about that rat race. I've seen what it does to many people in my life. I've seen what it does to produce this never- Uh, satisfied drive and work, and I don't want to be like that, so I have no aspirations. I actually have no aspirations toward better jobs, towards promotions. That might be godly. It could be that this is just laziness masquerading itself as deep spirituality. In the same way that Jesus condemned the rich man for hoarding all of his harvest for himself, throughout the Bible, the lazy man is condemned also. And for the exact same reasons. You realize this? A lazy man is condemned for the exact same reasons that a rich man is condemned. For hoarding all of your time and your resources. Everything about your life is for you and is about you in laziness and in never satisfied, like white-knuckled, exclusion of all other things, accumulation for yourself. It's all about me. You cannot care for others. You cannot support others. You cannot be generous to others if you actually have nothing to give away unless you have worked hard to produce and to provide and to be generous with. And yet for many, if not most of us in this room, we perhaps have never involuntarily skipped food for more than a couple of meals. We've not had to worry about what to wear or where we'll sleep. But this is a reality for millions in the world. And it has been a reality for perhaps a majority of humans who have ever lived in the history of the world. 
And yet, even if we may or may not be anxious about what we don't have, say, to eat tonight, where we'll sleep tonight, what we'll wear tomorrow, even if we do or do not have anxiety about survival, how many of us are still anxious about what we don't have for other reasons? Greed, coveting, is not something that we have to be taught. For those of you with kids, or if you've been around many young kids, or if you were once a kid, you know this to be true. It's often the case that if and when we ever give our kids ice cream, one of them is completely content with the amount of ice cream that he has gotten until the next brother gets ice cream and the first brother sees the the bowl of ice cream and and considers that bowl of ice cream might be a little bit more than I have. And now the whole thing is unfair and now the rest of the evening is ruined. You can't enjoy from that moment on this amazing bowl of ice cream because you thought you were being treated unfairly. You can observe this in infants, you can observe this in toddlers, that they can be entirely happy for a toy to just sit there in the corner, but as soon as another toddler crawls over and takes that toy and begins having fun with it, then that first toddler must have that toy now. We are more sophisticated, we think, than toddlers but we are no different. We don't have to be sat down and explained eye to eye the concept of so-called fairness. It's an ideal that all of us hold to, that if some, someone has something, then I too should have that thing. And so like the younger brother, brother we're a bit more subtle and a bit more sophisticated, we think, but not at all different than toddlers, not at all different than this first younger brother. In writing about the Ten Commandment, the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet, Kevin DeYoung encourages us to slow down and break that whole commandment apart. There's, there's lots to that commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not cover his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is in your neighbor that is your neighbor's. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. How much or how often in our own hearts are we thinking, yeah, they sure have a lot of nice stuff? I'm so tired of living in this neighborhood. We live in a dump. It must be nice to live somewhere so fancy and so well-decorated and with such a good view. Why can't I have the HGTV house? Why can't I have what seems to have, seems to be Joanna Gaines decorating the interior of that house like they have? You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. I wish I had married someone like her. I'd be so much happier if I hadn't married my wife. Or look at her husband. He's always so friendly. He's good with the kids. He helps around the house. He fixes things instead of just breaks them. Why am I stuck with my husband when there are other better men out there? Why can't I be married at all? Like her, like him. You shall not covet his male servant, his female servant, his ox or his donkey. And my car is a piece of junk. It's not fair. Our friends take great vacations. They go to the Grand Canyon. They go to Disneyland. Some go to Hawaii. Some go to Europe. We're lucky if we get to go to grandma's. Why am I stuck in this loser job? I wish my kids were more like their kids. Why do I have such lame parents? Or you shall not covet anything that is, in your, that is your neighbor's. I wish I could have his intelligence. My life would be so much better if I looked like her. 
Why can't I get a normal family? Why can't I run, jump, throw, or be strong as my friend? Why is everything in my life hard? And why is everything in everyone else's life so easy? Of course, the dark secret of the human heart is that everyone thinks that life is easier and better for everyone else, including the people that you think their life is easier than yours. They think the same thing about you for other reasons. It is certainly not in the Bible that there is great spiritual insight to that the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. But once you finally get to the other side of the fence, you start looking, at, you start looking over other fences. And then we get more and we get more anxious that God isn't good or he isn't providing like he seemingly is providing for everyone else. And so God, therefore, must be unjust. He must be incapable. He must be untrustworthy. If I were God, I would provide for my needs better than he's doing now. Even though by our needs, we really mean our desires. If I were God, I would provide for my desires better than he is providing. Our desires just slowly evolve and morph into little gods making all sorts of big demands. But consider the ravens. Consider the lilies. Consider the grass. All day, just out there, living out their daily vocation of exactly where God has them for that day. If that's the case and God provides for them, how much more will he provide for you? This isn't saying that just trust God and he'll give you everything you need. This is not saying that your anxiety and your lack of faith are actually the walls that's preventing God from blessing you. If you had more faith, if you had less anxiety about these things, God will just give you them. No, ravens die every day, often from hunger. Lilies die. Grass is beautiful one day and then thrown into the fire the next day. But verse 29, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. And another way to translate that word worried, do not be worried, is nor get worked up. Do not get emotionally anxious about these things. Why? Well, verse 30, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and then here's the key, your father knows that you need them. If God is not father, then we just have to trust him because we have to trust him. The Bible says so. He's an all-powerful God that demands our worship and demands our trust. But if he's almighty God who is also a good father, then we can trust him. He's not just almighty God, but he is father. This is what we often profess together from the Heidelberg Catechism that we professed last Sunday. That I do not doubt that he will provide whatever I need for body and soul, whatever I need for body and soul, and he will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this sad world. He is able to do this because he is almighty God, but he desires to do this because he is a faithful father. He knows, he sees, he cares. He has not abandoned us to fend for ourselves. This is what the world believes. For all the nations of the world seeks after these things. What things? Well, to have enough to eat, drink, be merry, and to relax. 
because they either do not believe that God exists, and so eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We might as well have as much fun as we can today, for tomorrow is death. Or, if God is real, he does not care. So fend for yourselves, for why tomorrow we die. He doesn't care about today, tomorrow, or the future, so just get as much as you can while you can. And yet, in all of these scenarios, what does anxiety add? Jesus says in verse 25, and which of you can be, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? The word here for hour is cubit. The ESV translators have made it hour. And so Jesus is either saying how the ESV has translated this as a unit of time. Who of you, which of you can uh, add an hour to your life? That is, if God is sovereign and good over all things, our days and our hours are appointed. So being anxious about the, the, the span of your life, the length of your life, cannot add one more hour to your life beyond what God has appointed. However, though, a cubit could be also be just as easily used as a, a, a unit of distance, which is about 18 inches. So it could be that Jesus is saying, how silly would it be to stew in, anxi- in, a, in anxiety every night, to lose sleep, to just sit there worrying about being a foot and a half taller. I wish I was taller. And then just tossing and turning every day, wanting to be taller. Who of you can add 18 inches to the course and the span of your life? And yet, how often do we lose sleep or lose hours of joy worrying about things that are equally out of our hands? Equally out of our hands of adding time to our life or adding a foot and a half to our height? How, many, how often are we tossing and turning in the, at night in bed of thinking about what others think about us? If I'll get the promotion, if I'll get the grade, if I'll get the acceptance letter, if God will provide a husband, a wife, children, or a family, if God will do something about this health problem or that financial problem, who of you can add anything to any of those by being anxious? As Spurgeon once said, anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but only empties today of its strength. Anxiety, anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but only empties today of its strength. Worry and anxiety cannot vacuum out anything in the future. I think we often think this, my worrying about this is like flipping on the shop vac and I'm going to send this into tomorrow and worry about this thing in, in tomorrow in the future and I'm gonna suck it out, all of these potentially bad things, and I'm gonna suck it out and then just send it into space. Anxiety can't do that. All anxiety does is flipping on the shop back and just sucking out all of the potential power, all the potential joy, all the potential trust from today and then sending that into space. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Do you believe this? Do you believe that? We must repeat this to ourselves every day. Because while anxiety is tricky and certainly nuanced because we are such complex creatures of body, mind, and soul, at anxiety's root is is what? I think it's pride. That I am not getting or experiencing what I think I deserve. I would be better at being God than God. But if God is good all the time, and if all the time God is good, then I am ongoingly reminding myself that God is God and I am not. And I would be horrible at that job. Just for my own life, I would be horrible at that job, much less 
being God for the entire universe and every human on this planet. I would remind myself that he is great and greatly to be praised, that he is good and greatly to be trusted. Him, not his gifts, but he is worthy to be trusted, that he is the strength of my heart and he is my portion forever. Not just what he gives, whether I have a lot or whether I have a little. Paul says, I have learned the secret of contentment in Philippians 4. And what is his secret that he has found out about being content? That I can do all things. I can live. I can experience anything through Christ who strengthens me. In this economy? Yes. I can encounter all things in joy, in thankfulness, in contentment, and in trust through Christ who strengthens me. What do you lack? Nothing. You lack nothing. The world tells you you lack many things. But the Christian who knows, trusts, and experiences God as Father, nothing. He is good and I trust him. So what do you have? Nothing that you did not receive. What do you lack? Nothing because God provides everything we need. And so what should you do? Verse 31, thirdly here, what should you do? Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. What is the kingdom? What is the kingdom? It is not something we build. The kingdom is not social programs or evangelism efforts. The kingdom is something that Jesus, King Jesus, initiates and brings in. This word, seek, is the most active verb that we, his people, are ever called to do. The kingdom is God's good rule over heaven and earth as he brings all of creation into right relationship, into right worship, into right order under our king. And as King Jesus builds his church, bringing hostile and exiled sinners under his loving rule through his death and resurrection, making former enemies now his friend, for, for making them his friends, forgiving their sin, giving them new hearts that they might be alive to him instead of just alive to themselves, just pursuing death in themselves. If all of that's true, Jesus is saying, seek that. Like the character Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, make belonging more and more and more to the reign and rule of Jesus, living in deepening joy and trust and contentment under his good rule in your life, make all of that the central point of your entire life. Moving toward, belonging to, seeking these things, not seeking after comfort, not seeking after leisure, not seeking after your appetites, but the kingdom of Christ, living in joy under his reign and rule. And when you do, making the central point of your life, belonging more and more to the reign and rule of Jesus in all areas of your life, then all of the things that you actually need, not the things that you desire or demand, but the things that you actually need will be added to you, will be given to you. God, your good father, knows what you need and he will certainly give what you need. In fact, he will give you all things for life and for godliness. And so verse 32, Jesus says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Just like above, way up at the top of chapter 12 in verse four, where Jesus told the crowds, do not fear, 
fear not those who kill the body. What can they do to you? The worst they can do to you is kill the body. The worst thing that they can do to you is end the temporary when God will give you everything. Trust him. Fear him. Revere him. Trust in his care over your life when he will give you himself. But so what in the meantime? Jesus goes on to say in verse 33, sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Already several, several times throughout Luke we've considered, should we apply Jesus' teachings here absolutely now this side of his death, resurrection, and ascension? Does this mean that all of us right now should quit our jobs? We should just make like 700 posts on Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace and just get rid of everything we own, give it all away, that any pursuit of money or a paycheck is necessarily distracting or even sinful. After all, we're going to see in chapter 18, Jesus is going to tell the rich young ruler something very similar, sell all you have. After all, we often hear that money is the root of all evil, a phrase coming from Paul in 1 Timothy 6. But that's not quite what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, is it? Paul says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Paul is piggybacking just before that, that when he is saying that those who desire to be rich will fall into temptation, will fall into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and into destruction. Those who desire to be rich, those who love money, like Jesus confronted in the younger brother above, are in a major place of danger, in a major place of coming judgment. And here's the thing, this can apply to those who have a lot, and this can apply to those who have a little. To those who are rich, to those who want to be richer, to those who don't have much but want to have more. In both cases, these two kinds of people think that they are lacking that their lives are not full, and if I could just have another $100 a month, or if I could have another $100,000 a year, then I could trust the Lord. Then I could be happy. And so Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, and Jesus says here in Luke 12, remind our wealthier brothers and sisters to not set their hopes on their paychecks, on their houses, on their retirement funds, their investments. Why? Because that's stupid. That is so dumb. There is no guarantee that any of that will be there when you're 75. There's no guarantee that any of that will be there tomorrow. While we have more kinds of financial insurance to protect us from like a total and cataclysmic loss, I mean, we don't even have money in our bank accounts, do we? Like they're all just like digital ones and zeros. What is money? I don't know. I don't know what money is. Just some agreement that you and I have that I'll give you some digits and you give me a butterfinger or something. It's here and gone. If your trust in money and possessions are causing you to not trust in the provision of God, then Jesus is saying, get rid of it all. We sang that earlier. Did you realize we sang that? I trade my treasure and all my reward. Why? Jesus, to know you. 
This is the same category of radical teaching from Jesus that if your eye is causing you to sin, what should you do with it? Pluck it out. But can blind man still sin? Yes. Can people who have given away all of their money still trust in themselves and in possessions? Yes. And so what should you do? Deeply consider, verse 34, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We are loyal to what we value. What you value demands loyalty. So we often think of giving away, giving to the church generosity as perhaps a thermometer, as an indicator of where our heart is. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Treat your giving, treat your generosity not as a thermometer, but as a thermostat. You want to affect your heart? Start giving to the the things that you want to value. What we value demands loyalty. And if comfort is the object of our greatest loyalty, then we will make decisions, we will prioritize things that continue to grow more and more comfort. But comfort and the accumulation of more and more and more are just terrible gods. And they are empty duffel bags. These gods demand more and create more and more and more what? What do they create? What do these gods create? Anxiety. Discontentment. And anxiety prevents us from investing in others and in the place and object of actual security, of actual peace. What? The kingdom of heaven, the king of heaven, who has earned all, bought all, gives all. And so only you know what is enough. I think I perhaps have sat through sermons on texts like these and the end application might be so give more to the church everybody and that might be true what is enough to accumulate what is enough to give away in generosity I don't have a number for you these are great things to invite accountability to invite wisdom from others in your GC or in your discipleship groups or wherever, friends, family, parents, whatever. We invite accountability and discipleship in so many areas of our lives as Christians, and yet we think that our books, our checkbooks or our bank accounts are kind of like off limits. Invite others into this. Is your money your pizza? Have you earned it? Do you deserve it? You can't expect me to be generous with all of this, why? Because it's mine. Or of the things that God has given you, has he given these things to you graciously so that you might be generous? You might hold these things loosely. Don't trust in or worry about that which is just so temporary. Instead, rest in what God has given you, what he has given you that is actually yours, an eternal inheritance of himself that we share in, that we receive as if we were the older brother himself, the firstborn who has earned and demands all of the wealth of the father, that we, his people, are united to the firstborn, the son of our father, the Lord Jesus, who has earned and received a kingdom for himself and then he gives it all to us, his people. He gives us glory, he gives us holiness, he gives us eternal life now, that we might one day be free from sin entirely forever, that we might belong to him, that we might get, what is our inheritance? 
that we might get him. You are the strength of my life and my portion forever, David says. If he has given us all things and what do we have that he has not given, then this creates in us a deep, deep trust. A very open-handed possession of things. What do I have that he has not given me? What do I lack? Nothing. So I'm able to give freely. I'm able to build in my own budget generosity to you all. I'm able to build in my budget giving to the church and to other nonprofits and to other mission work or whatever it is. And if I'm not giving in these areas, well, perhaps that's reflective of my own heart. And rather than waiting for that thing to just reflect in a deeper love for God like a thermometer, maybe I should crank it up. Crank up the thermostat that my love for God might follow my generosity. It's a weird thing. Which is, which is the engine and which is the train that is pulling these train cars? It's a difficult thing. And so this is why we need wisdom, we need uh, accountability, we need discernment from each other. But God has given us all things. He is able to do all these things because he is a good God. He is desirous of these things. He wants to do these things. Why? Because he's a good father. If God is not father in this text, then we have no reason to trust him. We have every reason to be anxious. But if he is father, we have every reason to trust him. Let's pray now that he would help us to do so. Our father, we are thankful that you are father. We can call you father, that we can know you as father, that we can experience you as a good father. But Father, help us to understand our role as your children, not as toddlers bouncing on your lap, but as your adult working sons and daughters, being about your family business. Help us to take seriously this family business, the kingdom of Christ, our older brother, our king, who has loved us, who has lived for us, who has died for us, who has been raised to glory for us. Help us to understand the inheritance that is ours in heaven forever. Help us to look forward to this day when we receive it fully and finally. You, O oh God, are the strength of my life and the portion, our portion forever. Help us to believe these things. Help us to receive these things. Help us to experience these things for our own joy, for our deepening commitment, and for your glory in our life and beyond. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.